Good morning. Uh, this is not for Sammy Rhodes. Um, he could fill it, but this is uh, Mountain Fairs Friday night, so uh, this will be happening and being set up yeah, over the course of the week. Uh, it is my privilege, though, to introduce our speaker this morning. Uh, Sammy Rhodes is a graduate of the University of South Carolina. Um, he went to RTS for seminary and has been involved in RUF for the last 11 years, the last six of which he's been ministering at the University of South Carolina. So please give a warm Scots welcome to our brother, Sammy Rhodes. Hey, well, thank you guys so much for um, letting me be here this morning. It's a Monday. I'm sorry it's a Monday. Mondays are the worst, but I'm glad to be here. Um, this is my first time at Covenant College, and some of my favorite, yeah, yeah. Some of my very favorite uh, people um, graduated here, or Covenant College grads. Scott, I don't know, Scott's grad, I don't know what you call your, Scott's is the mascot, I'm learning this. Cool. Um, ben Robertson, he does, are, are you up at William & Mary? Love him, if you know him. Matt Trexler, I think he came and spoke a couple years ago. Um, dear friend, and then David Barr. I know these are probably like all well gone. This is just my attempt to connect a little bit. And it was a mess, so. Um, hey, so this morning what I want to do is look at a passage together from John 11, and really, I want to think about Jesus. In particular, I want to think about um, maybe a, a part of Jesus that we either miss sometimes or don't like. Um, the way I want to think about it is Jesus in the face of our sadness, but really, the way I've been thinking about it is Jesus, often in the, in the Gospel of John, is like disappointing people, or he's doing things that um, his disciples or the people in the towns just don't understand. Um, I don't know if you, you saw Inside Out. Um, my wife and I took our kids, and literally we wept through the movie. We sat behind our kids to the point where our kids just turned around and laughed at us the whole time. <laughs> but I think about Jesus like, like sad, the character Sadness, where it's like we don't know what to do with him. We kind of sometimes, if we're being honest, don't like him or what he's doing. And John 11, I think, is this beautiful passage that gets into that. So I want to look at it just briefly this morning. I'm going to start John 11. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6 and then skip down to verse 30. Here we go. I'm reading from the ESV. Um, now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sister sent, sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Verse 30, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. 
And Jesus said, Take away the stone. But Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Do I, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this in account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let me pray for us, and I want to dive into what I want to talk about this morning. Let's pray first. Uh, Jesus, would you meet us in this place? Um, meet us where we are. We thank you that you are a Lord who loves us and meets us, not where we are pretending to be this morning, um, but where we actually are. And Lord, I pray that you would do that. Would you meet us, in the, especially those of us who come brokenhearted this morning, those of us who are depressed, those of us who are lonely, those of us who are still trying to figure out what life looks like after um, tragedy and after loss. Would you meet us in the places of our sadness? Would you speak your words of peace and grace to us this morning? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. <clears throat> so one of my favorite authors over the last, probably, I guess, 10 years, is Jonathan Franzen, and he wrote this article in the New York Times maybe six years ago, and he was thinking about technology and basically how technology has, has kind of crushed or shaped our ability to actually love each other and know each other. It's like, you've heard this, you know, you're probably tired of hearing this, but the article was so profound in one of its parts that I have to start here because I love, it has so much to do with John 11. Here's what he said um, in this article. He said, I may be overstating the case a little bit. Very probably you're sick to death of hearing social media disrespected by cranky 51-year-olds. My aim here is mainly to set up a contrast between the narcissistic tendencies of technology and the problem of actual love. My friend Alice Siebold likes to talk about getting down in the pit and loving somebody, and she has in mind the dirt that love inevitably splatters on the mirror of our self-regard. This is the part I love. The simple fact of the matter is that trying to be perfectly likable is incompatible with loving relationships. Sooner or later, for example, you're going to find yourself in a hideous screaming fight, and you'll hear coming out of your mouth things that you yourself don't like at all. Things that shatter your self-image as a fair, kind, cool, attractive, in-control, funny, likable person. Something realer than likability has come out in you, and suddenly you're having an actual life. Suddenly there's a real choice to be made, not a fake consumer choice between an, an iPhone and an Android, but a question. Do I love this person? And for the other person, does this person love me? What I love about John 11 is it really is Jesus getting down in the pit and loving his friends. It's Jesus getting down and showing us what love looks like in the face of suffering and sadness. And so I just want to ask three questions of John 11 this morning as we kind of think about what do we make of it. First, I just want to ask why Jesus waits. Second, I want to ask why he weeps. And then lastly, why he wakes Lazarus from the dead. I really worked hard for that third, for that third W. Um, so just bear with me. Uh, first, why he waits. So the strangest part of this passage is this. It's really, really clear, John is saying, that Jesus and Martha and Mary and Lazarus are friends. Like, they're, they're friends. They're more than Facebook friends. They're more than Snapchat friends. Jesus doesn't just love them. He actually likes them. I remember a friend uh, in a Starbucks in Statesboro, Georgia, asking me this question. We were, I was bemoaning how poor ministry was going and just really depressed. And she said, Sammy, I think that you believe that Jesus loves you but do you believe that Jesus likes you? 
but he actually enjoys you. And this is clear that Jesus actually liked, he didn't just love his friends, he liked them. He, he had been, Martha had, had cooked him homemade meals. He'd been in their house. He probably slept in Lazarus's bed for these house parties that they would have. Uh, Mary had been at his feet giving him, you know, literally a foot rub with her tears, which is a really weird, you know, image. They're really intimate. Jesus really cared for them, which is why verse 6 is so weird. You've probably heard this before, because we would think it would say Jesus was so moved by what happened to his friends that he saddled the donkey and he and his disciples made it as fast as they could to Bethany. And instead, it says, therefore, he waited two days longer. Why? Because Jesus wants your hope to not be in what he can do for you, but to be in him. Jesus wanted their hope, their trust, their love, not to be in what he could do for them, i.e. saving their brother from death, but he wanted it to be in who he was to them, the coming Messiah who was going to begin to make all the sad things come untrue. But I don't know that that's what we want, if we're being honest. Uh, John Acuff years ago had this blog post that really stuck with me. It was called Great Sex, Flat Abs, and Jesus. And what happened was he was in a Walmart, and if you've ever been in a Walmart book section, he had noticed something really, really weird. He had noticed that, you know, you have these men's health magazines on the right side of the aisle, and on the left side of the aisle, you had these Christian inspirational books. And he noticed something really fascinating, that on the front cover, the lines from the front cover of the men's health magazines were, like, eerily similar to the lines on the back covers of the Christian books. So he had this, like, quiz. Can you guess which... Uh, which this is from. So he had like 10 lines, like line number eight was uncover the proven process that will lead to a life of success and total fulfillment. Front cover of a men's health magazine, back cover of a Christian book. Another line was living life without limits. Front cover of a men's health magazine or back cover of a Christian book. And here's what he went on to say. He said, do I ever go to a God with a laundry list of better demands? Give me a better marriage, a better ministry, a better life, a better job, a better everything. Do I chase the blessings of God sometimes more than the presence? Do I ever treat God like a really good self-help guru that is there to meet my needs? Yes, yes I do. And I love this line. But I don't want God to simply be a new vehicle for the things that I want. I want God to be what I want. I want him to be enough. The, question, the first question that comes from John 11 is simply this, is where does Jesus need to disappoint you so that your hope is not in what he can do for you, but so that your hope is in Jesus and who he is and him being enough for you. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave his friends there. He goes. So the second thing I want you to see is why he weeps. And this is where it's a really weird scene because Jesus finally shows up. He's clearly missed the funeral and he's showing up to this group of grieving people. If you've, if you've been to a funeral, you know the awkward part, if you've ever been to a visitation especially, you know the awkward part is what in the world are you going to say? Like, what, what are you going to be like? This happened to me a few years ago. One of my best friends from college, his dad died unexpectedly of a heart attack. And I went to the visitation. It was about two hours from home. Part of that was my, wife, my wife's dad had died a couple years before, and I just knew how much it meant. Even people don't know what to say, and they show up in their awkwardness, just them showing up means something. So I decided I would go. And as I was making my way around the room, though, like I, I just kept thinking, I haven't seen my friend in probably three years. What in the world can I say? What can I possibly do? How can I like, make this as unawkward as possible? And as I made my way around the room, when I finally got to my friend, he just saw me, and he burst into tears. 
and we hugged for what felt like five straight minutes. And I love the way that one commentary, uh, one commentator puts it. He said that when Jesus, when it says he wept, it would be better to say he burst into tears. When he saw Mary and he saw this scene and he saw the sadness of what his friends were going through, he burst into tears. It's really interesting. We don't have a ton of time. We didn't read the Martha part, but it's fascinating to point out that Jesus seems to comfort Martha, the doer, with truth. You know, he, he comforts her with what he's going to do in the resurrection, but then he comforts Mary, maybe the more, the, the more um, feeler, uh, with tears, and he meets her sadness with his own sadness. And the question is simply this, why was he crying? And I think this is really important. They weren't sentimental tears. Like, he hadn't been listening to the latest Bony Bear album and just really feeling it which is a lot of, I mean, have you done that yet? <laughs> Maybe your biggest chapel takeaway is just go give it two listens and let it reach the places in you that you didn't know were, were there. They weren't regretful tears. It wasn't the end of Schindler's List where it was like, I could have done so much more. They were neither of those things. But I think they were tears for three reasons. One, he's crying about death. Jesus hates death. It's, it's interesting, in verse 38, there's literally this word in the Greek that was used of horses, big beasts, when they snorted in anger. And that's the word it says about Jesus, that he was troubled in his spirit. He, he hates death. Death is not a natural part of life. Death is this curse that Jesus has come to undo, and it makes him not just sad, but angry. They're angry tears. But they're more than that. They're tears at his own friend's death. Jesus isn't indifferent to your suffering. Jesus isn't indifferent to your sadness. He's not indifferent to your depression. He's not indifferent to your anxiety. He's not indifferent to that, that loss that you just faced. He's not indifferent to your breakup. He's not indifferent to your sadness. Uh, sometimes I think for me, I don't know if you're a Seinfeld person at all, but I, the episode that I always think, this is how I think about Jesus typically. I think about Jesus like the Soup Nazi episode where if you remember the soup Nazi episode, the, thing, the whole thing is they want to get soup from this incredible soup place in New York, but to get through this guy, he's a very militant, like if you don't order it just rightly, then he says no soup for you and kicks you out of his store. Um, one time I used this illustration in large group and uh, a guy left his notes behind and all it said was Jesus was not like the soup Nazi and I was my biggest failure as a preacher. <laughs> um, but sometimes I think that's how Jesus is. If you don't do things just like he asks, then you're done, like he's done with you. And John 11 says so differently that Jesus is so full of love for you, he's not indifferent. Your sadness makes him sad. They're tears of love. But then it's, it's more than that. They're also, he's crying about his own death. What's interesting, if we were to go down in John 11, Caiaphas has this really interesting part of the end where he talks about is it not better to give up one man for the whole for the sake of the people jesus can't help thinking about think about how eerily similar lazarus being in the tomb is to jesus who just in a few like literally moments is going to be in the tomb jesus is facing his own his own death and no doubt he's emotionally and spiritually thinking about the suffering he's about to undergo they're tears of grace as he faces the wrath that you and i deserve he doesn't just make us wait he also weeps with us. 
This is why my favorite scene in all of Narnia is Magician's Nephew. And there's that scene where Diggory, if you remember the story, Diggory, the whole time, the, the young boy, all he wants Aslan to do is to come and stop his mom from dying. His mom is in her deathbed. And there's that scene where Aslan finally comes toward the end of the book, and this is the conversation that Diggory has with Aslan, and it's just full of that tension. He says, Diggory says, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up until then, he'd been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws in them, but now in his despair, he looked up at its face, and what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. There were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. A few years ago, I was having coffee with a friend in Starbucks. It feels like a theme, it feels like a theme in this sermon, which is, makes me sad. I really don't like Starbucks coffee for a lot of reasons. Um, but I was there, no less, because I live in Columbia, South Carolina, and there aren't that many options. And uh, I was processing, so a big part of my story, how, how I became a Christian, was my dad, when I was 12, um, he had nursed a cocaine addiction that blossomed into a crack cocaine addiction. And if you know anything about crack cocaine, it really just takes over your life. And so it had really taken over my dad's life, and to the point where he had moved out and been put in drug rehab in Greenville, South Carolina. And um, so that's a big part of my, you know, we talk about wounds. We all have, our stories have these places of wounding. This is my biggest wound. And I remember meeting with my friend, um, because I remember the phone call I got when I was 12 from my dad in rehab, and it was the moment where I knew things were never going to be the same. And I'm having a call with my friend, we're processing how my dad's story has affected just the way I do life, it's affected the way, you know, different sin patterns, addictions, that kind of thing. And he said to me this really profound thing. He said, Sammy, you, you have to understand, he said it with love, he said, part of what we're going to have to do in your counseling and in your recovery and in your therapy is we're going to have to take a 12-year-old Sammy by the hand and go back to that place and look him in the eyes and say, Sammy, Dad's not coming home. And, I mean, I burst, like, I burst into tears. Um... And the only thing I could think as I was processing this theme was Jesus saying, yes, and I want to come and simply cry with you there. I want to take you by the hand and be with you and just come weep with you there. We're not very good at weeping with each other. We are quick to point out things. We are quick to recommend books, if you're like me. We're not very good at just weeping with each other. And yet, that's what Jesus is saying even today to you. Where does Jesus need to take you by the hand, want to take you by the hand, to a painful place in your life and just weep with you there? You know, sometimes we sing amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die with me? But we can also sing amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would cry with me? But he does more than that. He doesn't just make us wait. He doesn't just weep with us, but he also does something else. He doesn't leave us in a place of sadness. He, he brings the hope of the gospel, and that's what, lastly, why he wakes briefly. So most of us, Tim Keller points out, I love this, that most of us go to the grave and then cry, but Jesus cries and then goes to the grave. Why? Because he knows he can do something. He's come to do something. He's come to, in the words of Tolkien, make all the sad things come untrue. 
And what I've always missed about Jesus in this scene is I've always thought this was about Jesus showing up and showing his power to us, like showing like he's the one who is the author and the creator of life, and so he's raising Lazarus back from the dead to life, which is certainly true. It's all true. He is the Son of God eternally. But I think he's doing something more. He's giving us a foretaste. He's giving us a sample of what he's come to do. This is like, so for me, the way I think about it is what Jesus is doing is, I, I'm, a, I'm a food lover. I hesitate to say foodie because that, that sounds so pretentious, but I love food and my favorite moments in life. Sometimes I mark my favorite moments in life just with celeb- celebratory meals. So my family kind of had that culture growing up and I try to do that with my wife. When we go on these road trips, she wants the history. I could care less about the history. I want the food. I want the good coffee. I want the good, you know, the good sandwiches, the good donuts, the good, all of it. So one of my favorite moments is going to these nice dinners, and if we're celebrating something nice, we'll order a bottle of wine. And it's gotten, as I've gotten older, I'm the one now where the waiter or the waitress will bring the bottle of wine, and you've been in the situation where they want to give you a little taste, so they pour a little sample, and you have to pretend like you know what you're doing, you know? So like I'll do the thing where I like swirl the glass and smell it, and then, I mean, I'm at, I really am at my fakest when I'm like pretending to know what the, how, like, Oh, yes, fine, sirs, I will take a bottle <laughs> of that. Um, it is very nice, very choice. Um, and so, but I think this is part of what Jesus is doing. But what are they doing? What they're doing is they're giving, you a, they're giving you a taste of what's to come, of the bottle to come. And Jesus very much is doing that with Lazarus. He's giving us a taste of what's coming for us. It's October, whenever it hits October, like part of what I've loved about being here just feels so nice. Like Columbia, you don't understand. Columbia is one of the circles of hell, <laughs> circles of hell when it comes to the heat. And it feels so good. And it makes me think October, my brain fall. I start thinking Christmas. I love Christmas. And the more what I love about this passage, this might sound weird. That's okay. I'm going to embrace this part of me. Is I love this image of Jesus unwrapping Lazarus catch that part? He's in the grave clothes. They would wrap bodies. And Jesus literally says, unbind him. And, and Lazarus, the, 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 you know, he begins to be unwrapped. And I keep thinking like this as I think about Christmas. And I think about like, I don't know what you're like, but I think about all the gifts. I'm already thinking about, I've gotten really into coffee. There's this variable temperature gooseneck kettle, which sounds so stupid, <laughs> that I want. But like this is the gift that I need. It's the gift of what Lazarus represents. This is the gift that you need. And it's the gift of three things. It's the gift that, in the words of Jonathan Edwards through Tim Keller, which you know that means it's going to be good, it's the gift of all our bad things will work for good. All our tears, all the sleepless nights, all the heartbreak, it's not wasted. That doesn't mean we know what's, we don't, we can't. It's too cliche to say, oh, you know what Jesus, and don't brush past that but we can trust it to Jesus. All our good things will last forever. Like the things that you love about Covenant College, the friendships, even the food we were just talking about. Like my favorite scene of Jesus and John is when he cooks his disciples breakfast at the end when he's in his resurrected resurrected body. Like, and they smell it from from the ocean and they come rushing in and here's Jesus cooking for his friends. I'm like, yes, Jesus. Like, donuts to welcome us into heaven? Just a suggestion. (laughs) Um, And then all our best things are yet to come. 
all our best things, the things that are yet unseen, namely seeing Jesus, getting to be around Jesus, getting to laugh with Jesus, getting to hug, more than side hug, Jesus, <laughs> getting to be with him and to be with his people. It's going to be incredible. I'll close with this. I love the way Gregory Nazianzen, he looks at this passage and here's what he says about Jesus. And here's what I want to leave us with. He says this, he prays, but he hears prayer. He weeps, but he causes tears to cease. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that, um, just would you give us just a little glimpse of yourself this morning, that we might love you, that we might know what it means to be loved by you, that we might begin to join you in this work of making all things new, that we might be this gift uh, to our community, that we might be this gift to our friends. Would you do this and more in us this morning? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.